Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled Potassium Management Made Easy is provided by Medtelligence and is supported by an independent educational grant from V4 Pharma. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Dyskalemia is common. Both hypo and hyperkalemia are associated with increased mortality and morbidity. It's very important to know what the risk factors are for hyperkalemia. And we identified those a number of years ago in a large analysis. And there are very simply two things. First of all, the kidney handles 90% of the body's potassium. So reduce kidney function, GFR of less than 45, definitely put you at higher risk for developing hyperkalemia if you're using agents that affect potassium in the kidney or giving potassium. Secondly, it's the serum potassium level itself. If it's above four and a half, you're going to be at higher risk for developing hyperkalemia, especially if you have reduced kidney function. Now, it's important to understand this factor because the renin-angiotensin system inhibitors are critical in the management of kidney disease and heart failure. And diabetes, of course, is common to both genesis of those diseases. So these are very important drugs, which in people with reduced kidney function have limitations because of hyperkalemia. So there really needs to be a way to manage hyperkalemia to enable or facilitate the use of these agents in this population of very high-risk patients. This is CME on ReachMD. I'm Dr. George Backris. So let's start with a patient case. This is a 54-year-old black man with a diagnosis of class 3 heart failure, diabetes, and chronic kidney disease, or CKD. Estimated GFR 43. Attempted to maximize heart failure therapy and CKD therapy, they were unable to tolerate angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors, or ACI, except at very low doses. Unable to tolerate spironolactone. Intolerance to ACE inhibitor and spironolactone due to hyperkalemia, potassium greater than 5.5. And note that his baseline potassium was 4.8 equivalents per liter. The patient requires optimization of RASI therapy. Dr. Zanad, what is the level of risk for dyskalemia in this patient? Well, this patient had got diabetes, heart failure, CKD, and a history of an episode of hyperkalemia. So this patient is really at highest risk of recurrent hyperkalemia because of these uh, multiple risk factors. And this is very important because hyperkalemia is predictable, and we know about the risk factors, so we better be very careful with this sort of combination of risk factors because hyperkalemia is a risk factor and a risk marker. And uh, we know that there is uh, this U-shaped curve with uh, low potassium is associated with worse outcome, but high potassium is associated with worse outcome. And this patient is at very high risk of uh, recurrent hyperkalemia. And in this sort of patient, because we know that uh, the likelihood of uh, recurrent hyperkalemia is very high. We need to have a very careful 
monitoring of potassium. So repeatedly so, and actually the guidelines very clearly indicate that initiation or uptitration of any one of these RASI and MRAs need to be uh, concomitant to potassium measure and then ideally three days later, one week later, one month later, and every four months. So in a chronic state, we need to have a potassium check as per guidelines in normal condition every four months. In this condition, because of a high likelihood of recurrent hyperkalemia, we may need even to have more frequent monitoring. So Dr. Weir, based on the totality of the literature, what conclusions can you reach about dosing of RASI therapy and the risk of hyperkalemia? So if you look at the totality of the available literature, we are learning a lot more about what are evidence-based doses of both ACE inhibitors, angiotensin receptor blockers, and mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists when used to prevent progression of kidney disease or congestive heart failure. In general, the totality of evidence does support fully titrated doses. So for example, in people with diabetic kidney disease, using a full dose of lisinopril or losartan or herbicide has been shown to be effective in delaying progression of kidney disease. Whereas lower doses, we don't have any evidence at all, really. Likewise, in heart failure, evidence from clinical trials have looked at what is the right dose of the ACE inhibitor or the angiotensin receptor blocker or the spironolactone or eplerinone in terms of slowing progression of heart failure. And again, the evidence is clear lesser doses don't provide the same degree of benefit at all. And that is the major concern about why in clinical practice, we need to optimize doses based on what's been shown to be effective. Given a patient like this where the potassium is greater than 5.5 and understanding that dietary management is going to be very difficult by itself, how do you approach this patient to achieve a safe potassium level? Well, potassium diet is really challenging, but should not be forgotten. Uh, I know that you guys in nephrology do it all the time, and you sit down with your patient and explain the elements of potassium diet. We don't do it much in cardiology. We should do it. We should not forget it, because it may help, at least in the chronic stage, because, of course, there are alternatives. And the alternative in this specific case where we have uh, paid potassium diet is uh, potassium binders. Well, luckily, we have new kids on the block here with uh, at least two potassium binders, Petirovir and DS9, which are uh, very much better tolerated than the former potassium binders and with a very large record of evidence of efficacy, tolerance, and usability. And therefore, it is really very recommended that in this sort of patient, we start these patients on any one of these potassium binders. And actually, even if the patient is already with high potassium, we can get potassium down to normal value. And also chronically, keep the patient in potassium dark if the patient is a recurrent hyperkalemia. And this will allow uptitration. We have done trials of uptitration, forced uptitration, which was possible in patients taking potassium binders. And therefore, uh, we need to reach uh, guideline recommended doses and uh, 
there is no limit. The limit is the guideline for a to dose, and we need to get to the patient back each time, get a chance to get to this maximum dose because condition may vary, diuretic dose may vary, diet may vary, patient may condition may vary, and then we should never give up until we are at the upper tolerated dose or to the guideline recommended dose. Thank you very much. Now, I'm going to ask you both another question with a little bit of a different spin. In patients with heart failure that have normal kidney function, it's pretty easy to manage in terms of RASI therapy. But obviously, as we've already stated, it's difficult in people that have compromised kidney function, especially with GFRs of 45 or less. So, Dr. Zanad, how do you approach the heart failure patient with compromised kidney function in order to get them on RASI therapy? So this is a really very important question because these patients with some CKD or kidney dysfunction are at highest risk of developing adverse events, including hyperkalemia, but they are also at high risk of developing cardiovascular renal outcome, and they are at the highest need of RASI inhibitor, therefore. And they need not be deprived from this therapy just because of concern about hyperkalemia. There are ways to get them on uh, protective therapy and RASI inhibitors. And these ways uh, uh, include and the use of potassium binders. And the key approach in managing RASI inhibitor induced patients is indeed to keep trying to initiate this therapy and uptake with the help of potassium binders, whether it is used uh, temporarily if patients run into hyperkalemia or on a continuous basis if the patient is at risk such as in this specific case of recurrent hyperkalemia. So, Dr. Weir, same question from a nephrology perspective. Well, George, this is a very interesting question that you posed. You know, when people have chronic kidney disease and reduced ejection fraction, it makes things that much more complicated. Because on one hand, you don't want to boost the diuretic support, which may cause pre-renal azotemia and hypotension and loss of kidney function. So you really have to come up with another strategy. Dietary measures don't always work. So in my mind, I'd rather use a potassium binder that's well-tolerated and effective so that I don't need to use diuretics as much. So I don't need to count on the diet as a uh, consideration. And that way I can optimize my uh, medical therapy for these patients. Additionally, there are other considerations as well. And we have recently written a review, which was published in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology, which I think outlines a lot of the different strategies one can use based on kidney function, serum potassium, and the degree of reduced ejection fraction in your patients. Well, these are excellent points that you've both made. And unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. I'd like to thank Dr. Zanad and Weir for helping us with the understanding of this complex area of managing potassium and at the same time, enabling agents to reduce mortality risk. Dr. Zanad and Weir, it was great speaking with you today. Thank you so much. Very pleased to be part of this discussion. Thanks for having me today. I enjoyed it very much. And thank you. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Medtelligence and is supported by an independent educational grant from V4 Pharma. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, 
go to reachmd.com slash heart failure. Thank you for listening.